Hey, everyone. Just before we get started on this episode, I wanted to give a huge shout out and thank you to two people who left reviews recently on the Impact Investing podcast. Um, Sheena Sanders, I know both of these individuals. Sheena uh, left a review and she's a fellow financial planner who really has a passion for using finance uh, for good. So thank you, Sheena. And the other one was Sarah Wolf. And Sarah actually is an upcoming guest on the podcast. Um, it was not a, you know, a, a guest spot because she left her review. Uh, just so but that's clear. It was coincidental, but I had been meaning to have Sarah on the podcast because Sarah is heads up the Indigenous Initiative at Grand Challenges Canada, which is essentially funding, you know, providing grant funding and all sorts of wonderful support to uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs. And so uh, it just reminded me that I needed to reach out to her to set that up. So we've recorded it, and it'll be coming down the pipe in the next couple weeks. Also coming down the pipe, I've got a couple episodes, one on the Equality Fund, which is discussing the amazing work that they're doing supporting vulnerable women and girls in the Global South, and the Capital Good Fund, which is a uh, an organization deploying microfinance for low-income Americans. And I found an interesting conversation because you typically associate microfinance with developing countries. And yet here, arguably in you know, one of the wealthiest nations in the world, it's playing a very vital role for low-income Americans. So I hope you'll um, stay tuned and join for those uh, podcasts when they launch. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to the 18th episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. You know, for all of the promise of impact investing, the capital flowing into it is still tiny. It represents a very small fraction of the overall pool of global investment capital. And while there's no single reason for this, a meaningful part of the equation boils down to the risk, or rather the perceived risk, of making impact investments. This is especially true when we're talking about impact capital that's being used to finance investments in developing countries. And this is where the field of blended finance steps in. In this episode, we're joined by Joan Larea, who is CEO of a nonprofit called Convergence. Convergence was established in 2016 to help support the burgeoning field of blended finance and help facilitate more blended finance transactions. Joan has a fascinating background that includes a childhood spent growing up in a variety of developing countries, but a career spent mostly in private sector finance. Joan's career spans organizations such as the International Finance Corporation, Green Energy Fund, and the U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, affectionately known as OPIC, which, just to add more confusion to the mix, uh, was recently renamed the U.S. Overseas Development Finance Corporation, or DFC for short, uh, before she ultimately took the helm at Convergence in 2016 when it was born. Joan joins us on the episode to discuss how a variety of techniques can be used to de-risk impact investments, 
how that de-risking can actually attract much larger sums of investment capital, and what conditions make blended finance a viable solution for impact investment providers and investors. And for the social finance nerds out there, we get into some of the specifics of four common blended finance transaction types, which include concessional capital, guarantees or risk insurance, technical assistance facilities, and results-based financing. And make sure to stay tuned to the very end when we discuss the trends Jonah's seeing and her outlook for the future of this exciting new field. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. So Joan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, David. It's great to be part of your show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Um, blended finance is uh, an area of this space that I find even people who are in impact investing, a lot of people, unless they're really entrenched in it and working particularly in, uh, in certain environments or contexts within the space and are really kind of entrenched in it, you've never heard of blended finance or they've heard the term but aren't really quite sure what it is. And so I've been really interested to have this conversation because I think that it can do a lot of good for the listeners to just create some, oh, right, this is a possibility. Here's where it kind of makes sense and ways, things I should be looking for, for when it might be a a viable path to consider if I'm in this space. So can you start and just give everybody a quick introduction to yourself, your role at Convergence and what Convergence does? Sure. So um, Convergence is the global network for blended finance. And we operate on a membership basis. So we've got institutions that are members of us. And we supply data on blended finance. We try to enhance people's knowledge about blended finance. And we try to um, um, promote the deal flow that is available in blended finance, Help help the money meet the transactions that are out there trying to raise capital. Um, And in the data side, we literally go down to the transaction level, recording what is the experience, what is happening in the market, how many transactions are happening, who is doing them, what do they look like, what are the lessons. Uh, On the knowledge side, um, we do a combination of things such as writing case studies, we do training, Um, we will, you know, just contribute to the field, help help people upskill or institutions upskill um, their use of, of blended finance, which is essentially, as we'll get to in a second, it's a structuring device. Um, and on the deal-making, um, we are never in a transaction, but what we do is try to help transactions that need blended finance get more visibility among all the kinds of capital providers who come together to do blended finance. So it's just really just becoming a town square where the money and the transactions can uh, meet each other. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to get you to give a definition for, for blended sure. finance, but at, at its core, you want to help those who are seeking to raise capital, find those who are, uh, you know, it, so facilitate the, the raising of impact investment capital. And there are various ways in which you do that in terms of matchmaking between those with capital to invest and those who need it, as well as the sort of structuring, the blended finance structuring, which helps facilitate and make it easier for the investor to say yes <laughs> at, yeah. its, at its heart. Um, so maybe just let's just dive into what is blended finance? How would you describe it? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so essentially, um, these are a series of Venn diagrams, investing, impact investing, philanthropic activity, blended finance. But it's important to understand that blended finance is not another way to say impact investing. So we do not consider ourselves an impact investing house. 
Um, impact investing is a bit of a philosophy. The person in charge of money that is trying to in invest with impact is saying two things. One is where is my return? And the other is what impact will I derive by putting my money to work here? And impact investors may be totally, you know, on market terms, or they may say, I'm willing to do things and take a haircut on returns because I think the impact is so profound in this transaction. So that's a philosophy. Blended finance is a way to get investors and donors of different stripes into the same transaction. So a blended finance transaction is a structured transaction in which somebody is playing a catalytic role. It could be a philanthropic organization. It could be an official donor like Global Affairs Canada. It could be an impact investor who just said, I'm willing to take a haircut on returns. That kind of money operating catalytically um, to draw in purely commercial money. So a classic blended finance transaction will have somebody saying, I'm not really in this transaction for return. I'm in it for the impact, but I want more dollars working on the problem that I'm interested in. So I will design my in investment in, in this deal in a way that reduces the risk or enhances return of the other money that otherwise will not go into this deal. So picture a, I don't know, a Rockefeller Foundation in a transaction with J.P. Morgan Chase. And Rockefeller saying, yep, if things go wrong, I will take the first hit because I believe that this transaction is outsized impact. And J.P. Morgan Chase saying, well, if you're going to do that, actually, this makes sense for my investors. I can do this deal. Now you have more money at work in a transaction than you would have had to be in. So blended finance is a structuring device to use the softer money out there as a catalytic tool to draw in less flexible money so that there is more total money working on the world's problems, which we at Convergence think about in terms of the sustainable development goals. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Um, would you just, would you say, is it always the case that the, the, the blending of these sources of capital are meant to de-risk the investment? Are there cases where it's not de-risking and it's still catalytic? Yes. Um, sometimes there are, and if you go onto our website, not to, not to do a shameless plug, but we have actually oh, no. a diagram of the various different kinds of blends we've seen in www.convergence.finance. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes as well so people thank can Thank you. Um, so one of the things that you will see sometimes that doesn't look like de-risking is actually something that we do, which is um, market acceleration or design funding. Um, we have in our toolkit, we have some grant resources we can use. Um, and other people do some similar things where you're using grant money or other deeply concessional money to um, bring more transactions into the market. So your money may be the only money in the transaction at a formative stage, is a, a very, very early stage, because you think that kind of transaction could be really useful uh, towards resolving the SDGs, but the, those kinds of transactions don't occur frequently enough. So what you're doing with that money is saying, I'm going to help a kind of transaction hit the market. Hmm. Once it hits the market, maybe it's total commer totally commercial. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't need de-risking, but the thing would not have existed but for that grant money early on because the risk of failure before it gets to the market is so high. 
because the risk of it not being a viable proposition is so high because the business model is unknown. So sometimes what you're doing is you're de-risking without even there being somebody to de-risk yet. You're just introducing something by saying, I'm going to fund this thing until it is commercial or can potentially be so. So it's not always de-risking. And sometimes it's also returns enhancing. Okay. From a financial um, or capital markets point of view, those of us with you know, otherwise perhaps useless MBA degrees, I don't know, um, from, from the very, very philosophical point of view, they are the same thing. Saying I'm going to give you the same return with lower risk yeah. is exactly the same thing as saying I'm going to give you um, more return with the same risk. Right. Uh, they both should trigger a market reaction, which is some investor out there is now willing to come in who wasn't a minute ago. Yeah, it's every it's a return per unit of risk that matters, and so whether you're de-risking or you're increasing the return, all else equal, it amounts to the same. Now, it is true that those who are on the catalytic side, the foundations, especially the government organizations, get very nervous about saying, "I'm going to enhance returns." Mm -hmm. For some reason, they're much less nervous about saying, "I will help deal with some of the risk in the transaction." But again, the market does not care. Money does not care. There is, you know, as long as you're on that efficient horizon, we're good. Right. Yeah. So we're going to get into uh, throughout this podcast for everybody listening. Don't worry. We're going to get into some examples and details and ways in which this all can can happen. But what, one of the kind of examples that I I use as a just to again, so everybody's kind of on the same page. I think listeners come into this podcast with varying levels of understanding um, of of this of the space um social finance not just impact investing and um and so one of the ways that i would sort of typically describe it to friends and you may cringe a little bit because i'm going to oversimplify um but the risk is a, for the purpose of getting to kind of a really 101 um basic level at, you know at my prior work at world vision with the origin capital we we had a three-year fixed term unsecured note and that um we were raising money from high net worth investors and foundations and the money we were raising was a essentially being used to lend to small and growing businesses in the developing world. And so we'd go out to the world and we could, we could generate a 3% rate of return and world vision even you know promised. It was a promissory note. So we promised to repay that capital. The lending was being done by vision fund, which is a, you know, a microfinance institution with decades of experience lending in those markets. So a lot of credibility associated with it, but still at the end of the day, you know, an investor would come into that that transaction and say, look at that investment offering where it was a three-year fixed term, paid 3%. And they'd say, well, 3%, you're going to be lending to small and growing businesses in Ghana and Myanmar. And um, so th despite all that, 3% doesn't sound particularly attractive. And what good is, you know, I have a hard time assessing the risk here. World Vision is a as an INGO, they don't have a credit rating. I don't know how likely they are to be able to repay this in the event that you know the investment doesn't uh, doesn't return. And so, um, you know that that three percent is not a particularly attractive return, and the the risk of this trend, you know, of that investment is very subjective. I mean, I, I don't know how you definitively prove how much risk there is in that. It's it's all just a matter of the investor perception. On the other hand, if we can go to a donor like, and you know, there were some discussions at the time with Global Affairs Canada, who's experimenting more and more with these types of um, tools um, to de-risk that investment, where they say, "Hey, we're going to put up X number of dollars to act as you know as, as first loss capital in the event that a um, 
uh, World Vision lost money on this and couldn't repay their investors, it'll come from us. And so let's say, for instance, a donor like that puts up $20 million. That first $20 million of capital you raise is completely risk-free to the investor because the government has promised to step in and pay you if, if the, the organization can't. All of a sudden, 3% guaranteed by the government of Canada becomes very attractive because you know, your comparable investment guaranteed investment returns are, are lower than that right now elsewhere. Um, and so I use that as a pretty good example of, hey, it's, I'm oversimplifying, um, but, but, uh, but it just the 3% is unattractive if you think the risk is high and it becomes wildly attractive if you think it's guaranteed and I can't lose any money on it. And so blended finance is, is about how do we reduce the, 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 the risk involved to crowd in more for-profit market return seeking investors. Correct. And that's a classic blended finance structure. We have concessional capital either guaranteeing other capital or concessional capital. Actually, you know, somebody wrote the check and the money is with you. Right. Um, and if you cannot repay as World Vision, um, there's actually a pool of capital there ready to repay. So whether it's funded or unfunded, that's a classic, a classic structure. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a great example. And, and just more examples if you want more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I love them. I, and just to finish that, that example off, from the, from the donor's perspective, in this case, I'm using Global Affairs Canada. We could be talking about a foundation, as you say, or you know, anyone, really, a, a charity. Um, in their case, they say we could take that, that $20 million is, is, is sitting there and potentially will go in, entirely untapped if the investment is successful. And here we are, we've now resulted in you know, World Vision or anyone being able to raise $50 million or $100 million of investment capital to solve, to create jobs in developing countries. And we spent nothing at the end of the day other than potentially some lost interest if they've got to keep it in a, you know, I, I, let's just call that a wash. They've essentially spent nothing to spur investment and create jobs, which is their, you know, their, one of their goals on one of their desks is, is economic development. And so what a great way, what an efficient way to use government funding, you know, in that highly simplified example, if, if that all comes to pass. And so that's, I think, where the donors are, are becoming interested in more efficient ways to use their capital to achieve an impact. Is that, you think, a fair assessment? It's, it's a huge point you're making. Um, let's look at the numbers. The amount of um, official direct aid into the countries that Convergence uh, focuses on um, is about 150 billion a year and flatlining, if anything. Hmm. And the amount of money in the world's capital markets is what, about 300 trillion? Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, a lot of that's in public equities and very liquid investments. Um, but if you were able to bend the arc of some of that trillion, you're starting to hit the order of magnitude, sorry, 300 trillion, you're starting to hit the order of magnitude you need to really make a difference in the world. Um, and that's like a trillion dollars every day changing hands in the capital markets. As compared with 150 billion of your and not my tax money, um, topped off by a much smaller amount of philanthropic money that's that's focused on these same countries. So if you are in a, a government office trying to do the right thing with taxpayer money, um, or if you're in a philanthropic institution or an impact firm trying to enhance your own money, you know, stretch your your dollar, so to speak, or create a larger number. Of dollars aimed at 
um, the sustainable development goals, blending is pretty imperative. Now, it is not something you can do on every challenge and in every situation, but where you can, where you can ask yourself, how do I make double, triple, quadruple use of my own money? I think it's your obligation to try to do it. Um, one of the things we are really interested in, in at Convergence is the subject of, of, of blending at scale. Um, so much blended finance activity is happening on you know, $20 million transactions, $50 million transactions. How do we get to you know, frequent, repeated you know, $600 million, $1 billion transactions that will draw in the world's insurance companies with all the capital they invest on a daily basis? What about the world's um, you know, retirement schemes? This is fiduciary money. It cannot play games. It has to yield for its beneficiaries. You know, your pension fund, somebody's insurance policy when their Aunt Susie dies. It, it has very strict rules. But if some combination of catalytic money can go into transactions that are big enough and standard vanilla enough, we could draw the trillions that we need to actually start to address the world's problems. Um, so blending at scale is something we really want to see happen more often. I'm not saying that the $50 million transaction is not important as well, but again, donors get a lot more nervous working in a billion dollar transaction than they are doing something where you feel the motherhood and apple pie just oozing out of the transaction. Um, we have to get to a point where the feel good factor is not weighted so heavily in the actual hardcore outcome you know, impact-wise and financial-wise is really something that's clearly assessed and understood. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask a question about that. I want to step back and ask it before I forget to go and come back to this. Um, I had asked you a moment ago whether it's, you know, usually or almost always about de-risking the investment. You said usually, but, you know, there are some exceptions. Have there ever been any cases where, um, or any thought into, like, is liquidity ever the issue for an investor aside from just risk? And is there, are there any possibilities to use capital to improve the liquidity of the investment if that's the barrier? And would that, is that a field that blended finance looks at? And is it a real problem? Uh, it is a huge problem, especially when you're trying to draw institutional investors into the mix. The, when I'm talking about blending yeah. at scale, liquidity is a huge issue. Um, there are some investors for whom liquidity is not their issue. If you imagine a private equity fund, they've got a 10-year lock-in period, and their investors have agreed to that. I, I am in your hands for 10 years. I'm not going to hear how the story ends for 10 years. Um, but that's usually a very small slice of the pie. If, if you're an institutional investor, you give a, a small slice of your money to private equity funds, and it's very illiquid. And the rest of your portfolio, you want much more liquid. So liquidity... or Lack of liquidity is a form of risk. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, when you're dealing at the large scale, it is a really important issue. So there is a role for blending there to the extent that, um, so being concessional or being catalytic in a, in a transaction doesn't always mean being the first loss position um, or giving up a grant. It could be taking an outrageously long view so that um, someone else has a more liquid position. Mm -hmm. um, so you hear in the philanthropic sector, sometimes I'm talking about patient debt. Mm -hmm. 
It's debt that doesn't have to be repaid necessarily. If there's a cash flow problem, they're not going to increase the interest rate if that happens. Maybe their interest rate is not on market to begin with, but the whole effect they're trying to go for is to create some liquidity so there's a senior tier of capital that can come in and behave the way that its rule set asks it to behave, you know, um, whether it's, it's institutional money or somebody who just needs more liquidity. But liquidity is a huge issue. It is really a huge issue. There are all sorts of investors out there who cannot go beyond a three-year horizon or a four-year horizon. And the minute you say this is a 10-year deal, you've lost them. Does that happen a fair bit where you, you have um, the catalytic capital being providing liquidity rather than, you know, and I, and I know liquidity is a form of risk, but uh, the risk, you know, instead of protect, first loss capital or some sort of capital promise, um, it's actually addressing the liquidity concern. Is that common or relatively uncommon? Do you have any sense off the top of your head? It's not done very frequently, only because it feels, I think, a bit like a bailout. Um, So we have seen perpetual funds that have that feature where you do have some liquidity events and the fund just keeps replenishing. Um, The issue with, I don't mean to get too, too wonky on you, but the issue with having um, funds or any other thing that provides some liquidity is that fund manager always then has to keep some money parked in a liquid instrument themselves. Yeah. So yeah. a lot of investors say, no, no, do the illiquid thing. I will give you only a small slice of my money and I myself will go do the liquid thing that will be the majority of my portfolio. I don't want to hand you both things. So I don't mean to get too far off on a tangent, but yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, steer the whole conversation here. But I am just personally very curious. Like, I'm wondering about the role of like some a donor like a Global Affairs, where they say, "Hey, we're not going to provide first loss, but you, you, it, you need to, you know, be able to keep capital for five to ten years to make this work. And if you've got investors who need kind of more frequent liquidity than that, we're going to provide it because in aggregate over this long period of time, you'll be fine. We trust that you're going to manage this well and that it'll produce those returns. We're going to provide the liquidity. We'll get paid back, but we're, we're willing to wait further down the line to get that paid back to give this other investor who needs that liquidity sooner. I understand I'm oversimplifying. That would probably be fairly complicated and there's probably challenges with that that I'm not um, addressing in this highly simplified example, but I, I don't know. Have you ever seen anything like that? And is that what we see much more often is not actually blended finance, but what development banks do in financial crises. Uh, and you're seeing it right now with the pandemic situation. The development banks of the world can pump massive amounts of money into the financial sector to make sure that trade finance, you know, has the liquidity it needs to make sure that local financial financial institutions have the capital they need, and it's just pure liquidity operations. Those things don't necessarily need any concessionality at all. They just need cash. So that is something that development banks like IFC, African Development, sorry, International Finance Corporation, African Development Bank, um, uh, Inter-American Development Bank, European Bank for Reconstruction Development, that is their, you know, a strength of theirs. Mm. Interesting. Um, so I did forget my other question. I'm hoping it's going to come back to me as we go as we go forward here. But I'd love to maybe stop for a minute on um, where did where did do you know have a sense of the history of blended finance? Where did it sort of when and where did it start? Yeah. So first of all, I evaded your original question of what do I do at Convergence. So yeah, I'm please. CEO of Convergence, and um, I was hired as we got launched, and um, we where, were where, launched. 
Convergence launch? I'm, I'm mostly curious for the, your history. Yeah, so um, we went into full operations in February of 2016. And that's on the heels of the Addis Ababa meetings where the, all the members of the United Nations, all the countries got together and said, these sustainable development goals are our um, path forward, these organizing principles of how we are going to you know, um, deal with the development challenges around the world. And as these nations got together and talked about it, they did the math that I was just giving to you. This stuff needs trillions of dollars a year. We operate in the hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions. What are we going to do? Uh, and they look over the fence and go, gosh, the private sector has a lot of cash. Why don't we talk to them? And it was one of, sort of an aha moment, which is interesting in retrospect. It was such an aha moment. Um, but right at that moment, 2015, they realized that really this is a kind of problem set that if you can redefine it as an investment opportunity to some degree, you can draw on private capital. So therefore you need blending um, to direct some of your own resources into these transactions to get that private capital to work. And a whole bunch of smart people in the room of which I was not one started talking about why isn't there a center of excellence for this stuff? How come nobody knows how these transactions are put together that are blended? How, do, how come no, none of us knows how to do it? Where do we go? What are the lessons? What's the, you know, what's the evidence base that it might work? Um, and so uh, the government of Canada and a few others uh, decided to essentially fund and, and design a, an independent shop that would be the global network for this subject matter, which is convergence. So I have no... Um, I have no claim to the origins of Convergence. I was hired to operationalize a plan that was put together by other people um, who I must say include some very dedicated public servants of um, Canada. Uh, and so blended finance, if you go back and you're trying to figure out how long it's been done, I will give you several different answers. One is you can go back, say, 50 years because people like, I don't know, the Aga Khan Development Network have been doing this forever, mixing... mixing um, the ideas of philanthropy and and uh, you know charitable works and real estate investing and putting it in the same transaction and creating a permanent investment vehicle. There are people who've been at this for a very long time. So I think it's always been done, but not labeled and not categorized or counted. Um, if you go back and you see the use of the term, the earliest instance I can find is about 2008. There was a person who held the title of manager of blended finance in International Finance Corporation. Um, and that is Stacy Swan, who is now, the, uh, she's a co-founder, founder of uh, Climate Finance Advisors. Um, wow. And blended finance was originally thought of as a way to deal with environmental, you know, climate issues. So that's the origin. And I'm sure there are more origin stories of it, yeah. uh, none of which I can claim. Um, but I think it's an older construct than most of us really realize. And now it is a buzzword. Mm -hmm. And I have mixed feelings about buzzwords on the one hand. Great, everybody's interested. On the other hand, now we're all confused. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, can we, um, I, I, mean, I wanna get into your history too. Can you just tell a couple questions about Convergence? Is it a, is it a nonprofit? Is it a government entity? Is it a for-profit? We are a nonprofit uh, Canadian corporation. And uh, we are independent. We began life with a single large uh, contribution agreement from Global Affairs Canada. Okay. 
And um, the game plan has always been to diversify from that. So we have, over the past year, year and a half, been introducing membership fees very successfully. We're really grateful at the amount of interest among both you know, the catalytic side and the fully commercial side of uh, the investment community. We also have uh, received additional grant support. So for example, our, our market acceleration window, we have now grant, uh, a grant from RS Group, which is a family office in Hong Kong, to, to uh, help us put out more transactions out there. They're there in the natural capital space, which is a very tough investment proposition, but we think doable. We also have a grant from DFAT Australia for another um, design funding market acceleration program around sustainable infrastructure and gender. So we've diversified our sources of financing, um, and we too now are a blended finance construct of our own. Interesting. Great, thank you. Um, so, so you were you head up uh, Convergence, your CEO there. Um, how long have you been doing it for? And tell us a little bit about like I'd I'd love to jump way back. Like, where did you get started, and when did you first enter social finance, and how did that all come about? I find people's stories and how they get into the space really interesting. Well, I find it funny to be having an impact investing conversation or a social and finance conversation because I don't self-identify either either way. And yet here I am in your world and in your podcast. So this is terrific. This um, is interesting. Can I pause for one second on that? Do you not do you not think of blended finance as part of social finance in general? No, because you see it from like, hey, I'm helping market investors find well, transactions that... I'm in it for the humanity and the environmental yeah. consequences of it. So yeah, I'm very much propelled by impact. Um, however, I think of ourselves um, at Convergence as almost like financial engineers and guides. This is a, this is a, a tool yeah. to achieve your objectives. So when people come at us, we don't tell them, this is the impact you should be seeking. We're like, okay, if this is the impact you want and you want more money on it, here are the things you can do. So I feel almost like we are... Um, structuring and structural engineers rather than um, impact gurus. Yeah. Um, so my personal voyage, so I've been with Convergence since we went live. So early 2016. Um, my background, I don't know whether to go backward in time or forward in time, but essentially, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from a foreign service family. I've lived uh, in developing countries uh, all my childhood. Oh, wow. uh, we were in, in Thailand actually. So for me, this stuff is very real. This stuff about people not getting enough to eat, about people not having the right opportunity, about the lost potential of people who um, aren't given the same opportunities I had, um, the environmental consequences, the climate consequences. All of this stuff is very real to me because I did not grow okay. up, you know, in in my own country. Uh, I guess you'd say. Um, and I originally uh, was an East Asian studies major um, and um, went into finance at International Finance Corporation. I was there for 10 years. And this is why I don't self-identify as a social uh, or social finance or impact investing type. Is my entire uh, career as a financial, uh, as, as a finance officer was in infrastructure. Um, and it was massively high impact, right? Are you doing water, sanitation, solid waste, roads? These things make huge differences in people's lives and in the development status of an, of an economy. Um, 
but you know, it's it's not like you're investing in a school or a hospital. You don't feel it that that viscerally, but you know it's there. You you see it. You go out there and you watch a project being built, and all of a sudden, clean water is coming out of the end of a pipe into a slum, and you know you get really psyched up about it. So, but uh, I was I came from very much the project finance world, the infrastructure world, uh, and then I went into private equity. And again, this was a totally for profit, high returns private equity strategy, uh, emerging markets growth strategy. But what were we investing in? We were, we were investing in environmental services and clean energy mm. on the notion that this is high returns because around the world, the pattern has been that environmental restrictions tighten. Um, the cost of lost resources grows. Um, the cost of clean energy drops. Um, and so this is a theme that is a profitable theme to invest in, is going around doing things cleaner, faster, cheaper. So again, I was not in a firm that self-identified that way, but if you think about what we were doing, um, it is social investing or environmental investing. So that's my, you know, my career path took me there to OPIC, uh, which is now the USDFC, Development Finance Corporation, uh, where I was the, the head of business um, partnerships, uh, business development and, and partnerships. Now that's where things got interesting because uh, under Elizabeth Littlefield's tenure, uh, the question became, we see so many transactions come to our doorstep that are potentially really meaningful on the ground, but OPIC won't touch them because they are not credit worthy. And traditionally, OPIC would say, go get credit worthy and come back. And Elizabeth's question was, why aren't we helping them get credit worthy by seeing if there's somebody else who doesn't need a return, who can be in the deal with us and allow us to do our, do our job. Um, and that was why they created that position. And so voila, you're in the blended finance world now. Because what years is this that you were with OPIC? This is uh, 2014 to 2016 um, when OPIC, they had been doing some of this, but they really became serious about trying to blend their or mix their capital with capital that did not have the same fiduciary requirement or, or return requirement as the DFC or then OPIP did. So that's my career path. It's very much, you know, personal experience and then a hard career, uh, a hard uh, finance path, um, which behind it had a lot of meaning and a lot of impact, mm. but it's, it, it, you don't introduce yourself that way. You don't think of it that way, right? You're thinking of yourself more as an international civil servant. And lo and behold, what you're doing matters in a really real impact way. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it gets to a, a, a point at which I, I mean, I think all investing eventually, I think, and I think all investing is impact investing. It's just a matter of whether you're intentional about it and whether you're measuring it. But of course, every investment that we make has an impact, yeah. whether it's positive or negative or large or small. Um, and just recognizing and realizing that I think is a huge step forward because uh, as a friend of mine who, who, who described it, you know, traditional, the way we have been investing for most of human history has been sociopathic, which is without any regard or even awareness of the consequences of our investments. And, and so we can have a, a debate around how much impact we want to have, what type of impact, how much it matters, how much return we're willing to concede if we need to concede return, but just acknowledging that it has an impact um, is a huge, yeah, huge step forward. Um, and so yeah, you see these blending of these spaces where you're, what you're saying is like, Hey, I wasn't out there with the organizations that were out there. OPIC, I think is a different story, but some of your earlier experiences weren't like, Hey, we're out intentionally trying to make the world a better place and willing to see capital. So we're not impact investors, but you are. 
You are. Um, and, and that's the thing. If you think about the name of our firm, Convergence, what it's signaling is what you're talking about. If you are a pension fund or an insurance company moving massive amounts of capital against very tight rules, um, you are starting to have to ask the exact same question as that civil servant at Global Affairs Canada and as an impact investor does, which is, what is the outcome of my money, not just in, ret- in financial returns, but what am I doing here? You know, what impact do I have? Um, and if you do not ask that question, you have things like stranded assets. Uh, you find yourself in um, investments that are all managed by people who look the same. I mean, you end up in these dead ends that are not really very wise from an investment point of view. So it all converges, you know, doing good business and um, keeping your social license to operate and not killing Mother Earth. All these things end up sort of putting you in the same decision making as um, you would be if you did define yourself as impact. And you're right, every single transaction has impact positive or negative, as does not investing at all. Right. Sure. That's right. <laughs> well said. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. That's an extra extra point. Uh, uh, I like that a lot. Um, can you, uh, so you were at OPIC then from 2014-ish to 2016-ish, and then you went to Convergence from OPIC. Was that right? Yeah. And how did that come about where you, and what made, motivated you to make that switch? I was just minding my own business at my desk one day and the phone rang, to be honest. Um, and they said, how would you like to work in this field? And I said, okay, the field doesn't exist. So like, you know, how many people are in this firm? Well, the firm doesn't exist. Boy. Okay. Um, well, what are we doing? Well, we'd be building a network, but I said, but nobody's in this network. Right. So, and it, the, 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 the cherry on the top was it's in Canada, a country I've never lived in. <laughs> um, so I said, well, this is great. Where do I sign up? Uh, and that's how we came about. But what an opportunity. Think about what we're saying here. We're saying there are pieces and parts lying on the ground of this opportunity. You have commercial capital that isn't working with development capital or philanthropic capital. You have philanthropic and development capital that isn't getting maximum bang out of its buck. You've got problems that are of a, of a size that need everybody to be working together. And what if in our little shop, we help some of this happen? What if we really change um, really change it up by creating a, an extra lane of traffic where transactions that otherwise would never happen, you know, go and, and get launched? So I, I thought it was a fabulous opportunity. And today, four or five years later, we've got a very strong track record of quality, of being trusted, of being neutral, of knowing our stuff, of being able to show people what's possible, of helping them on their voyage toward getting some of these transactions done. So I think it, it's, you know, it was a, a great opportunity. I'm really thrilled, actually, to be there. How many people are at Convergence now, like working with Convergence? Not I a don't big team. Direct I head count right now, but I think it's about 16 of us. Wow. Um, many of us are in Toronto, and we've got three people in Nairobi. We have me in Washington, and we very recently hired a managing director for Asia Pacific, who is in Manila. Oh, great. Um, and we're all obviously in our living rooms and uh, sunrooms and spare bedrooms, um, but that's notionally where we are. Great. 
So let's dive in. You've, you've said at the outset, uh, blended finance is not an impact investment. Um, it is a way to structure um, a transaction to potentially facilitate uh, an impact investment. Um, can we talk about uh, some of the structures? Are there certain typical ways you might structure a transaction, a blended finance tra- transaction, and you know, where, where you can, if you can give like a tangible example? Yeah, I'm going to give you a couple examples from different sectors and different places, um, just so people get a sense of the range, because it's not all it's not all of a kind. Um, so one classic way you see blending is where some catalytic capital is in the financial structure, along with more commercial money. Um, and an example of that would be the solar energy transformation fund that SunFunder did. Um, and what they what this fund did was going it was providing debt financing to companies that were providing so, solar solutions in several developing countries. Uh, they were focused on India and Africa, and so uh, they they attracted among other investors OPIC now the DFC now OPIC um, tries to lend on non-concessional terms. Um, they're a very long-term lender, but they do not you know, walk in trying to offer reduced interest rates. Um, and what happened is the concessional money in that transaction was provided by IKEA Foundation. So IKEA Foundation gave a $5 million catalytic first loss grant into the fund, and that allowed OPIC and other investors to come in. And so that $5 million ended up making possible a $42, $43 million fund that's doing solar financing in Africa and India. So that's a, a really classic structure. And, Not and only- specifically just because, hey, there's this $5 million cushion that if there are losses up to the first $5 million are be covered by IKEA Foundation, we will be made you know, whole or at least re- return part of our investment uh, and, uh, and their risk constraints without, without that first loss capital wouldn't have allowed them to make that investment. They would have deemed it outside of their risk tolerance. That's right. And some of the other folks in the deal were Calvert Impact Capital, which shows up a lot in our statistics, and and KennyArt, which is a single family office. Both of them provided senior debt. So they needed commercial terms. Although they are impact investors, they identify that way. They invest typically on commercial terms, not on you know, reduced market rate terms. They would not have been in there but for the IKEA money, nor would, I think, US DFC then OPIT. So that's a nice classic example of one kind of structure where you've got the concessional money slotted underneath the other money, providing a cushion, a risk cushion for it. Um, give you a, maybe a, another kind of um, blending what people might not think of. Um, there's a, a transaction that was called the Azure Financing Facility that was done by Catholic Relief Services. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a, a totally different sector. Uh, Catholic Relief Services wanted to provide financing to water service providers um, in some very uh, poor areas of Central America, including some rural and peri-urban areas in El Salvador. Um, so what they wanted to do is provide financing through local financial institutions. And the blending was actually uh, that um, 
Catholic Relief Services and its partner, Inter-American Development Bank's Bid Lab or uh, IDB Lab, um, they provided debt and equity, but the, the blending was actually in the form of a technical assistance facility that sat next to the investment structure. Um, providing technical assistance is a really frequent way of blending. So what that is, is a separate pool of capital. It's not part of the investment. It's a pool of capital that can be drawn on to help um, improve the overall structure. So it could be used to help beneficiaries be better borrowers. It could be used to help the local financial institutions make credit decisions that didn't rely on traditional things, but actually would help them reach more borrowers. You know, technical assistance can be used to help farmers do better farming once they get the financing. So it is typically a separate um, pool of money. Um, and in this case, it was providing engineering and project management and business and financial support to water service providers. So you have an investment going through local financial institutions, and then separately, you've got a pool of money that's grant money that's going out there to improve um, how these water service providers actually operate. So TA sidecars, very, 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 very consistent pattern in our data. So let me pause there for a second because I am cognizant that um, a lot of people coming into the space who are not from the development world may be getting lost by some of the the terminology. Um, it was certainly was overwhelming for me when I first entered. Um, so um, in this case, Catholic Relief Services is an INGO, right? And they specifically are trying to, you know, lead to po a variety of positive outcomes in developing countries. And that technical assistance, um, actually, if I'm, I'm, let me flip back to the, the simplified example I used in the very beginning. And in the case of, you know, our work at World Vision at the time, lending to small and growing businesses, technical assistance in that instance, and it can look like many different things, as you say, might be, um, you know, if we're lending to small hold farmers who uh, are growing crops and selling those crops and that's their business, um, might be, you know, agricultural assistance. So here's how to produce, you know, uh, here's modern agricultural practice that will improve your crop yield, make your business more efficient. And by, if you've got money to fund people to provide that training for those entrepreneurs, those farmers, you are de-risking the investment because they are more likely to be able to pay back their loan because they've had some training and assistance. Is that sort of the basic concept is the assistance itself is improving the odds that the investment is successful? It is improving the odds of the investment being successful, and but it also is directly helping people, right? Yeah. It is not uh, an investment through the investment vehicle. It's, it's helping the farmers directly farm better. So even if the entire that's devil's advocate. What if the entire financial structure collapses? You have still helped a farmer farm better with that right. technical assistance pool. And um, part of the reason I think you see TA facilities popping up frequently is because there are a lot of grantors who actually do not have the mandate or the authority to be inside an investment. They cannot put their money into a private company or a private fund, but they do have a real steady business of providing grants for technical inputs into agronomy or health services or whatever. And so what all they have to do to now be in blended finance is put, to put their usual stream of business adjacent to a financial transaction. Right. So um, they're still doing what they know how to do and what they have board authority to do or, you know, a management authority to do, but they're doing it 
in partnership with somebody who's doing some investing and it's win-win. The investment side now has a more stable transaction to invest in because it's pretty sure the farmers are going to pay back if they grow better crops or grow crops more efficiently. And the donor in the instance has not had to retool itself. It's just doing what it normally does, but in connection with investment activity. So is this a, is this a fair characterization? Imagine a world in which uh, an INGO is providing some of this technical assistance to, you know, use the example I just gave of smallhold farmers, helping them improve their, you know, crop yield and production, and that's their business anyway. They spend X number of dollars doing that every year, and now you know that there's a, you know, a transaction that wants to happen in this same part of the, you know, the country in the same community where you've got this organization that either, you know, already operates there or wants to operate there anyway. And you, you marry those. So now that the investors know that there's technical assistance happening, it's being funded separately, it's got the sidecar, and the perceived risk to the financial transaction is reduced because exactly. there's this assistance happening. Yeah, so the perceived risk drops, and so you may draw in investors. That's why we consider blended finance. It has a catalytic impact, um, and it allows the donor to do what they're good at normally, but um, also the donor can benefit because that investment side may be selecting or, or um, identifying farmers who are more likely to succeed in the first place. Right. And they just need a bit of help and they'd be really off to the races and they need that help and they can get it. So you may have eyes and ears on the ground via the investor or the fund manager, whatever, that you don't as a donor otherwise have a selection process that you're a part of that might um, make your catalytic money more effective. So that's another way to think about it. Do you find our our TA facilities um, as catalytic as first loss capital, would you say? Not quite. (laughs) I imagine my guess is not as catalytic, but Oh, I think, I think, you know, different horses for different courses. When we look at our statistics, um, the most frequent thing we see is concessional capital right inserted right into the um, financial structure. Technical assistance is a big population too. And the cool thing is these are not independent. uh, These are not mutually exclusive. There are lots and lots of transactions out there that have concessional capital in them and a TA sidecar. Um, and it can be a combination. It can coexist. Absolutely. Um, I'll, there's an, another example um, of blended finance where instead of a donor or a catalytic um, capital provider or an impact investor um, inserting their money right into a transaction, the other thing you can do is I think we we're talking about it a bit a little earlier is to um, provide a a guarantee that will shave some of the risk off the transaction. And the cool thing about that is that it's an unfunded risk. And and to take the gibberish out of it, what I'm saying is you, the catalytic party, the government of Canada or the foundation, you're promising to pay up if there is a trigger event or if something goes wrong or if somebody else does not meet their obligation. If you are right and the transaction is going to go forward well, you essentially have catalyzed other people's investment with zero money of your own. You have a contingent liability and hopefully it never materializes and you've, you've, you know, your tax money is still there. You can do something again with it. Um, So um, unfunded risk participations or guarantees 
have been a big feature in blended finance because they are incredibly um, uh, good value for money in a, in, a, in a strange sense. You never hopefully put the money out the door. The other neat thing about guarantees is the private sector investor typically is not in the transaction, not only because of the real risk, but also the perceived risk. I'm terrified of this transaction because I've never seen anything like it. Therefore, I can't assess it. Therefore, I'm going to place large amounts of risk on it. If the donor in the equation says, I will guarantee 50% of your money, and the guarantee is never called, in theory, that private sector investor, the next time they're presented with the same opportunity, will say, you know what? I only need a quarter of my money guaranteed because I've seen this before and it worked. And I now have a better ability to assess the risk and, and I know what I'm getting into. Um, so guarantees hopefully have a salutary effect of teaching people that their perceived risk was actually a little too high and they could actually do the same deal without. So you, wean, you can wean people in successive deals away from the guarantee. The big gorilla in the um, partial risk guarantee business in blended finance has been USAID with their development credit authority which typically has provided a 50% first loss guarantee on money that was being invested by um, commercial parties. And um, that guarantee authority has now rolled over to the USDFC, but um, it's been a really powerful instrument in the blended finance world. Um, and one example I can think of is the Sustainable Ocean Fund, which was done by Marova Althelia, which was a $90, $100 million fund. And in that transaction, USAID provided a 50% first loss guarantee. And because of that, they were able to get in um, development finance institutions, um, as well as, um, you know, some uh, um, commercial investors who otherwise would not have, who would otherwise would not have banked on the transaction. So they got, you know, AXA, major insurance company. Um, they've got um, Caprock, which is another, it's an, uh, an investment house. Um, Credit Suisse was in the deal. They got some big names in this transaction, and they did it by having some of the money guaranteed by USAID. So that's another classic structure in blended finance. Can we, um, so just to tease out concessional capital versus this, this latest example you're giving of, of a guarantee, mm -hmm. and I, I think of that, maybe first loss capital is used in other contexts, but I think of it in that context of sort of this unfunded guarantee. We're going to okay. commit the money, we'll have the money aside, we're not going to necessarily provide, you know, give it to you in advance, but if there's a losses, trigger event, we'll then fund um, this. So that is sort of the example of the guarantee. In, in the in the concessional capital world, just help me tease out the distinction between them. So in concessional capital, yeah. you have an investor investing as well alongside different investors with different levels of yeah. willingness to give up a market-based return. Um, and so you can kind of use that to like, hey, this investor will accept less so that this investor can get more as opposed to providing a first, like a guarantee of capital. Right. Uh, a first loss guarantee is different from first loss capital. Okay. Um, first loss capital is I, the catalytic party in this transaction, will actually stake my money. I'm going to write a check and that check will go into the structure, into the fund or into the company or into the project. 
It's out the door. I have funded it. As opposed to, I will make you whole if you have trouble by then coughing up the money. So one is money out the door and one is money promised in the event of a trigger event. Um, in the case where it's money in the transaction, when we were talking at Convergence about concessional capital in the financial structure, we're talking about that money that actually was handed over and is in the deal. Um, and it may do one or more of the following things. It may say, if things go wrong, I won't ask for, if we only get 50 cents back on the dollar, the entire 50 cents will go to the other people in the transaction, the other institutions, the transaction. That's first loss capital. That is, I will take the hit. So that's, it, it can say, I will, on the downside, do worse than you. It could also say, I will, on the upside, do worse than everybody else in the deal. So the concessional party might say, if the returns in this transaction exceed 3%, I'm just going to take 3% no matter what, and everybody else will get the, the overshare. Um, it could be it, operate in a band. So um, I will share up to an amount, and I will take a loss down to an amount, and after that, you're all on your own. So whatever it's doing, it's not quite commercial. It's taking a hit of some variety, but whether it's giving up upside or taking a bigger share of the bad scenario, it's you know, a matter of negotiation and what that particular transaction needs. Um, sometimes what it will do is say, this is a 10-year investment. Everybody else can be made whole up to their original money plus 8%, and then we will start sharing up to the next 10% and then we will stop sharing. I mean, you, the, the yeah, it could be anything, infinite right? variety, but the money is actually in the transaction. They are an investor. Just, yeah. This is a hard thing for some donor uh, organizations to do. They don't have the authority to actually put their money in the transaction. And so they end up doing things like I'll do a technical assistance pool on the side or whatever, but it is money in the transaction many times. Interesting. Okay. That's really helpful clarification. Um, last question. I was on your website. I, I noticed uh, it stuck out stru stuck out to me because I wasn't sure how it fit in. Um, you so you mentioned three different structures. A fourth on your website is results based financing. Yes. Can you talk? I'm curious how that fits in the blended finance world. So um, typically, results based financing also takes a bunch of different forms. Mm -hmm. But the basic uh, idea of it is this the donor or the catalytic party in the equation does not put any money up until the impact they're seeking has already been delivered. A simple form of it would be, for example, if a company or a fund um, can demonstrate that at the end of its investments, it did the, it, it, you know, produced impact in some measurable unit and it, outperformed, the donor will actually give them money. That's a real common example. So um, let's say you have a fund manager and they are committing to um, X number of tons of uh, avoided carbon emissions over the life of their fund. And if they manage to do double the amount of avoided carbon, it's a climate fund, okay? Um, the impact investor or the catalytic capital party in the transaction will actually give up all of their return to the fund manager, right. or they will top up the fund manager's part of, of the you know, profit sharing by 2%. 
Once you deliver, I will pay you. Um, it can take very complicated forms, which are development impact bonds and social impact bonds. In those structures, what happens is a private sector investor invests capital and implementing agencies go out and achieve an objective. They reduce childhood mortality in a region by 13% or more, whatever. And as they deliver those outcomes, a donor, such as Global Affairs Canada or Rockefeller, whoever it is, will then repay the investor. And the better the outcome, the more money the investor will make. Um, so you are placing, so, and if there is no impact at all, the investor's out the money, and the donor walks away without having put any money into something that had no impact. So it is, you deliver, then I pay you. That's the basic concept of output-based aid, results-based financing, development impact bonds. Uh, there are other instruments out there that have a hundred different names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and how do you think about that? I mean, in the, maybe I'll just add, I mean, I think, the the additional I think perspective anyway that I in in our in my experience was that you can use it to incentivize not only sort of the outcome that y you want but the areas in which you want those outcomes. So um, you know we were dealing with an example where we had um, you know if you were going to um, do traditional like savings and loans groups and working in developing countries where you know get communities to pool their savings and use those savings to then provide loans to other people in their own communities, creating little kind of, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? The co-ops, cooperatives in their own communities to support each other is a really effective way to, you know, uh, improve economic development in a lot of communities. But, um, and so a traditional grant might say, here's a bunch of money for an INGO to go in and do this work. And they work with people to set up these savings and loans, train people, set up safety deposit boxes, provide the training. Um, and results-based financing not only says, hey, we're going to pay you for the, the number of these that you do and, and the impact that you're having, but hey, we noticed that, you know, when we give you money to go do this, you typically stick to, an INGO might typically stick to big, you know, urban areas where there's, it's just easier to do, it's less travel costs and all that. We also notice, hey, it's typically, you know, men who are more involved in this than women. Hey, we notice that these things tend to die after two, three years after you set them up. So you can kind of use the results-based financing to say, hey, we're going to pay you not just for setting them up, but we can say, hey, for, for you know, reaching more marginalized communities, you'll get extra payment. You get, if you reach more women, we'll get extra payment. And so you can really kind of change the incentive structure to, to achieve the, you know, the results that, that, that you want. I'm curious how that, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say these structures are very alluring. If you are on the impact side and, and, and your motivator, your motivation is impact and not returns because you feel like, okay, I'm only going to pay out if they deliver. This sounds great. Where do I sign up? There are some, there are some limitations or considerations um, on any kind of financing, but the ones that hit us when we look at this area are, first of all, um, the metrics. So you have to somehow find unarguable ways to measure the impact. So number of women helped. Well, how much did you help them? Which women? Were they middle-class women? Were they very poor women? Were they women who were very isolated or who had all sorts of options because they lived downtown? So finding the right metrics and then assessing at what trigger point the metric is overachieved or underachieved. You know, is it is this is, is three women 
you know, a metric kilometer or a square kilometer good or bad or, you know, so the metrics are tough in these things and you can spend a whole lot of time trying to figure that stuff out. The next thing that um, we've, uh, we think are, is worth considering is repeatability or replicability, whatever fancy word you want to use for it. Can this be done a second time? One observation is that um, very often the elements that you needed to put together in one place don't work in the next place. They're not transportable. So in India, you may have private clinics that deliver maternal and child health outcomes. And in another country, it's all government owned, or you don't have the same NGO operating who is a good implementing agency. So you just don't have the same structure. And the metrics, again, will have to be reinvented because what was easy over here is hard over there. Um, and third scale, I cannot think of any large scale um, development impact bonds or social impact bonds or outcome-based schemes. Show me a $20 million one. I, they, you know, I can name $500,000 ones. I can name million-dollar ones. It's been tough to get these to scale. So as alluring as they are, these are the things we'd have to conquer to really make them a major force in either development or in blended finance just as a structuring um, tool. They're tough to put together. Yeah, I mean all the things you you just mentioned and 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 and, and, and lots more. Yeah, I mean it's 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 incredibly difficult. This is the thing that you know prior to me entering this space, I you know I I just didn't couldn't fathom how complex um, not just impact bonds, but in general the problems are and why it's not easy to solve them. Uh, you just sort of uh, yeah, you just don't appreciate the amount of complexity involved. And and since I you know entered that space. You just, whenever you sort of look at something and go, why don't, why don't they just do this? It's, you just realize, oh, wow, it's just never that simple. There's some of the smartest people I know w are working on these problems and their problems and their persistent problems because of precisely how difficult and thorny they are um, from a lot of perspectives. I, I guess I'm curious, what, how do you see that? I had never considered results-based financing as a part of the blended finance world at all. So just describe how you see that fitting in the context of blended finance. Fair enough. And it, it is markedly different from the other forms. The blending is where you are. Um, it's, it's the offer of paying for the outcome that incentivizes a private investor to step forward in the first mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, so um, you may imagine, you know, UBS Optimist Foundation saying, I'm in, I will, you know, provide $5 million of investment capital for the, for this, these two implementing agencies to reduce maternal and child mortality in Rajasthan, India, um, which is a real example. It's a case study on our site. Um, cool. And um, I'm only going to do it because I think I'm going to get paid back by somebody. I think this is a good bet. I think I will make my 3% or 8% or 10% return. Um, and who's going to pay me back? USAID or Global Affairs Canada or somebody reputable. Um, in developed economies, it's actually the government that pays you back. You know, the, you know, it's the government of the United States or the government of the United Kingdom. So the blending is that that private sector investors at the table banking on getting their money back plus a return because of the presence of some donor, um, it is uh, not the other, you know, I would say challenge in these structures is there's not a lot of um, 
permanent investment capital lining up for this stuff. It's all been very deeply, um, I would say, impact-seeking investors. Mm-hmm. You, you don't see mainstream investors doing these structures yet. Yeah. But yeah. that's why it's blended is because one kind of capital is triggering the release of the other kind. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what types of conditions or characteristics would, would make for um, blended finance to potentially be a suitable solution? Um, I, I once wrote a, a short blog in which I sort of made the obvious point, but let me make it again because you, you would think, wow, this is great. What do I, I should do this all the time. You need a revenue line. The project or the fund or the company or the structure has to actually cough up a revenue line somehow. Without some cash generation, you can never attract you know, commercial investors, because when they put money forward, they need that money more or less reliably back plus a return that reflects the risk that they just took or that they thought they were taking on the way in. So, for example, right after an earthquake, when you have people standing around with no food, no water, no shelter, this is not blended finance moment. This is cash on the barrel head, 100% donor, you know, and, you know, everything, all hands on deck, forget the structuring. These people just need to be fed and housed right now. Um, so blended finance is useful when there is something there. There's a, the makings of a value proposition. Now, it gets very cool when you can use it in climate finance or natural capital finance. If you think about a jungle, a standing natural rainforest, you don't go, oh, my gosh, there's a revenue line. But you can potentially, with blended finance, construct one. Somebody out there is willing to pay something to make sure that that forest is there tomorrow. And because of that, because of that value, you can structure a financial transaction, which that willingness gets expressed as a revenue line. This stuff gets very deep into financial engineering, but it's doable. But So you have to have some kind of cash flow potential there or value capture potential or voided cost or something that basically replicates money being made. Um, it is a useful thing where some amount of catalytic cap- capital can trigger large amounts of investment capital but it is not the solution for every development challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And the closer you are to just one spark igniting something, you know, fabulous. Uh, It takes heavy doses of catalytic capital to attract small amounts of private money on commercial principles into some places. That doesn't mean it's not worth doing. The very first transaction in a post-conflict country, the very first transaction in a new sector, the very first transaction with people who are extraordinarily difficult to reach because of where they are may very well be worth doing because the next transaction gets easier and easier. But those are the places where blended finance shines. When you get the makings of value, there's embedded value somehow that can be unlocked. Mm -hmm. Are there certain sectors where you see blended finance naturally taking place more? Yes. Um, again, on our website, we have some uh, st- summary statistics out there for the public. It's great data on the website for anybody. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, awesome. 
we try really hard to make it very accessible and, and we would welcome feedback on, on where we're missing and where we're doing well. Um, what we see is very often uh, in the um, energy sector, and it, it's a lot of clean energy, which is near commercial in many places and near commercial in many instances and just needs a bump to get over the line and it has a revenue line that has potential. Um, so you see a lot of uh, things happening in the energy sector. You see a lot of things in the financial institutions sector. A lot of that historically has been microfinance and other things um, of that sort. But it also, if you look at blended finance, it's happening, financial institutions, what we can't see at convergence all the time is what is the underlying activity being financed? Yes, the blend may be a blend to support I don't know, a local bank or something, but that local bank is in turn lending to farmers or to, uh, to some sector. So it's hard for us to, to, to peel apart that information. But infrastructure, um, clean energy, financial institutions, more and more it's in the ag sector, which is pretty exciting considering how important uh, that sector is. Uh, the very least amount of activity we see is in health and education. Those are tough to finance. Mm. Many times private sector investment is not welcome. Um, and many times there's, it's hard to generate a return even on a blended basis. Interesting. What, what is the nature of that difficulty? Like, is it the difficulty in finding the revenue line on education? So um, what you will see is, for example, student financing, loan financing. Yeah. That stuff is easier to put together as a financial structure um, than, say, early childhood education, which very often may be what the people in that nation have decided that their government and only their government is going to supply. And there's no profit-making possible. Um, and in healthcare, uh, there are a lot of things that are just not um, revenue producing right. or there isn't enough commercial margin in there, no matter what you do to make them profitable. To the extent there's anything happening there, I imagine it's more in the kind of impact bond space, like the development impact bond space where you, you, know, you have a, a government potentially willing to pay for an outcome, but it's not a revenue line. It's a, Hey, we're going to save your government X hundreds of millions of dollars or millions of dollars on the reduced healthcare bill because we've made your, you know, you know, mothers and infants more healthy and they're less likely to die and need healthcare. Yeah. Um, one, one ginormous example of blended finance in the healthcare sector, it's not a single transaction, but it's a set of activities that I would argue is a meta transaction, which is the um, advanced market commitment for vaccines. Mm, um, right. yeah. So the Gates Foundation, USAID and others have, basically said, if you produce these vaccines for these diseases that only affect people in very low income circumstances, you're never going to make money. And you're not going to produce these things otherwise, because you don't know how many units are ever going to be bought. You don't know what the size of your market is. And it doesn't look like a great market. You know, what the advanced market commitment said was, you produce them, we promise to buy X units at Y price. Now you've reduced the market risk of this and you have vaccine producers stepping up and producing vaccines that are sorely needed um, for, you know, a large segment of, of, of mankind. Um, it's not a single transaction, but that's blended finance. And that is, in fact, um, an output-based or outcome-based uh, 
uh, almost an outcome-based solution. That's really, yeah, that's really interesting. If we had more time, we could go into a lot of more detail on that. Um, I want to end maybe with two, two questions. One um, being, where do you see, um, can you have a sense of the size of blended finance um, it, you know, industry and, and kind of where it came from and where it is today? Yeah, uh, when we got started, nobody had any information really, except OECD has been gathering some information, but only on funds and facilities, not in other structures. Um, so we've been gathering transaction by transaction and just adding it up and seeing what we got. And um, what you'll see on our site is about, I don't know, 100, I, I, I'm not sure, today's numbers, somewhere around $130 billion worth of activity, mostly in the last, say, five or so years. Um, and that is an undercount. That is the information we can see based on public information out there and a whole lot of data scraping. Um, so the market must be substantially bigger than that. We just can't see it all. Um, that is still tiny by, uh, by the standard uh, that I've set for us, which is you've got problems that in the trillions, can we just get going? Um, but what we would love to see is at least our member institutions, whether or not Convergence helps them, we would love to see if the members of Convergence collectively in the next several years, you know, by say 2023, are collectively doing $100 billion per annum of blended finance as a contribution towards solving um, the sustainable development goals. That's where we think it should be. That's still not trillions, but again, this is one tool in a toolkit. But that's the size of the market that we can piece together so far is in the 130 or so billion dollars. Okay, awesome. Um, and I, sorry, I have two, I lied, I have one extra question. Um, it's a quick one, I hope. So Convergence is, fo is focused specifically on developing markets, is that right? Yes, um, although we recognize that this is a universally Right. potentially universally useful structure. That does happen in the U.S. too. We just wrote a case study on a U.S. case um, uh, in forestry. So that's available on our website because we recognize that this is happening in developed economies as well. Is there is there any convergence equivalent for developed markets? No, there isn't. Oh, wow. There's an opportunity either for convergence. There's an opportunity, and we would love to do more there. We, we need to get funded to do it, um, but... And it's going to look different. I think governments have more fiscal space in a wealthier country. And so you can do things like tax incentives to draw in investment. And I suspect if we looked at the stats, we'd see more of that than you do in a developing economy where governments don't have the same tax base. So it it's going to look different. But yeah, we somebody should be doing this stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Last quick question. Um, what trend, like, what do you see sort of happening? Just like prognosticate on the future. What do you see trends, expectations for the future? Anything that sort of jumps out at you? What we hope we will see is simplification, standardization, and scale so that blended finance can happen faster, more frequently, and everybody just kind of knows how to use it. You know, you start thinking, okay, there's debt, there's equity in this transaction, there's a guarantee. Oh, by the way, there's concessional money that has its role in this transaction, and it has this rules set that govern it, and we can all get this deal done. Right now, it's taking way too long. It's way too much of a cottage industry, and there are not enough transactions that really galvanize the, the hard investment capital out there. So... I would like to see it go there. I'd like to see it be standardized faster, 
vanilla and everybody knows how to use it and when to use it. And education is a big part of that. People just being aware of what's been done before, what signs to look for, what's, you know, and just sort of shorthand be able to say, okay, this feels like a, this type of deal. <laughs> exactly. Um, you, you start having shorthand for, you know, if you imagine when I say green bond now, we all know what a green bond is. I'd love it if we all knew what a, a tiered capital structure in a fund was, or if we all knew what output-based aid was. It just um, And, you know, I'd love to see J.P. Morgan Chase or um, Credit Suisse or uh, responsibility tossing off, you know, dozens of these uh, products that have blending behind them so that, you know, ordinary investors go, oh, one of those, I can buy that, I can invest in that. That's really where we'd like to see the field go. You know, exotic and complicated and innovative are not your friend. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, Joan, I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope this podcast is, is helpful for continuing to spread the word about blended finance and create some awareness. And I really appreciate you taking the time. It's really insightful. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending a, t a bit of time with me this afternoon. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that.